That was great worship tonight. I noticed we had 12 people in the worship band. I was thinking of them as the apostles, but then we'd have to speculate on which one is Judas. So <laughs> then I thought maybe the 12 tribes of Israel or something, but that was awesome worship. That was a blessing. It's a big week. I know for a lot of you, it's a time where your kids are off school and, and, uh, but it's a time as we move toward Easter to celebrate that day this Sunday when we remember that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, on Friday, we celebrate Good Friday, which is traditionally the day that we celebrate Jesus' death. The truth is he probably died on a Thursday, but that's a whole other story. We're not gonna have a Good Friday service here. Um, because Calvary Chapel does the one at the amphitheater and it's right in our backyard and it's easier for me. So, <laughs> and then they also do a sunrise service at 5.30 for those of you that feel like it's not Easter unless you get up really early. So I'd encourage you to go to those if you'd like. And then we will have our services here, 8.30 and 10.30. And I just look forward to Easter, which is a really special day to me. It's it always so many memories of all that God's done and, and of course ultimately what he did in, in rising from the dead showing that he defeated death. Tonight we're in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 so if you want to turn over there. In Hebrews 9 and 10 we Again, following up with the whole theme of Hebrews, of Jesus and his superiority to the Old Covenant and the introduction to a whole new deal. In chapters 9 and 10, he goes through several different means of reasoning to demonstrate how really all along the children of Israel should have realized that the rituals, the killing of animals, the... Uh, feasts and fasts and all those kinds of things, they should have known that wasn't really what was going to do a work in people's heart. It really wasn't what was going to change people. And, and we look on those things often and our society would look on them today and say, boy, that's primitive. That's so, uh, you know, all of that sacrifice and everything. What do you, what do you think that's going to do for people? And in fact, as we, as we read the book of Hebrews and really understand it, God would agree with them that all of that stuff really couldn't do the trick, couldn't really solve the problem of sin at all. It depicted, it, it drew a picture for the one who would come who would be able to do something about sin, but that's what it was. And those people entered into a relationship with God because of their faith in doing what he told them to do, but really that whole old covenant was just God painting a picture. And, and so he wants them to understand that. And especially remember the context of the book of Hebrews. These are people who, after coming to the Lord, they started missing Judaism and wanting to go back to the old way of doing things, back to the symbols, back to the pictures. And there's nothing wrong with art and there's nothing wrong with symbols, but I think that for us, the message as well is that don't turn Christianity into something that is a picture of Christianity. Because Christianity is something that is in our hearts, a new covenant that God wants to do in a personal relationship with us. And I see people, periodically I run into people who have decided that, 
you know, well, we're too casual and I need something that feels more majestic. And so they return to maybe the church of their youth, possibly the Roman church or the Eastern church or the Presbyterian church or whatever. And, I, and I'm not bashing those. And yet I just want to caution you that it's a mistake to decide that having a relationship with God isn't enough. And so we need to add a few pictures. We need to jazz it up a little bit. We need to spruce it up a little bit. It's something that, that the author of Hebrews here is driving home. Look, why, why do you want to return to that? Why do you want to kiss a picture when you, you, the marriage is there? You have the real thing. He's living inside of you. He says he'll be with you always. Why, why do you want to go back to those pictures? Now, we study the Old Testament. We're in the middle of studying the Old Testament. Hebrews is simply a detour for us. It's not to say that there's no value in the law. But looking at the Old Testament, we see God at work preparing the road for the real thing. And, and that is a thing of beauty. And that is a thing of joy as we rejoice in it. But it's kind of like pulling out the photo albums and looking at the way things used to be. That's great, and we honor, we want to honor the past, but we don't ever want to return there. We want to move forward and go on in what God's doing in our lives today. So, Hebrews chapter 9, he says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, or the holy place. And remember that he's talking about the tabernacle proper. There was a courtyard outside the tabernacle and then inside that main tent that was, that was the center of it, there was the holy place and there was the holy of holies. And the holy place was, is what he's talking about here that had the lampstand, the table, and the showbread. And then he says, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables, tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he said, in that old system, and while he was talking, as he was writing this, the tabernacle wasn't around anymore. They, at this point, were in their in one of their temples, the temple that ended up being destroyed in 70 AD. And so he's, he's reminding them of the past, the tabernacle, the picture of the tabernacle, which then later the temples were based on the plan of the tabernacle to some degree. And ultimately um, in heaven, there's going to be a heavenly tabernacle or there is as well. So he's reminding them of this tabernacle system that was much less permanent than the, than the, the, uh, system that they were functioning under at this time, the temple system. Now he said, but I'd love to go into details about all these things, but he said, we don't, you know, I'm not going to do that right now. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. And it was in that holy place where the priests did most of their work every day. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, there are several places in the Old Testament and several in the New as well that emphasize that 
sacrifices, that whole system, was never intended to take away sins that people do on purpose. It was basically only to cover sins that were done by accident. And you see the whole system is built around the, the idea of having um, little cities of refuge set up that if you accidentally, like manslaughter, you could run there so that the victim's family wouldn't kill you and you could hang onto the horns of the altar. There were certain places that were safe. But there was nothing in the sacrificial system that would even deal with someone who just sinned on purpose. It was only for sins of ignorance. And that ignorance was partly ignoring what God had obviously said, but it was also the idea that, hey, if you just sinned intentionally, there's, there was never a sacrifice for that. That's why David, remember in Psalm 51, as he was repenting before God of his sin with Bathsheba, he, he mentions in that passage, you didn't want sacrifice. He was saying, create in me a clean heart against thee and thee only have I sinned. And then he says, you didn't want sacrifice. You wouldn't take delight in those. Those wouldn't satisfy you. He realized he knew what he was doing when he sinned. It wasn't a sin of ignorance. It was an intentional sin. But it was only from what Jesus did that, there, that anyone ever addressed the fact that we sin on purpose. It's not just always an accident. And so here again, the idea is, hey, in those days in that system, he offered blood for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. For the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So he said, even in that system, when they would do sacrifices, don't you notice? Nobody was able to go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and that only once a year. And God must want more than just to meet someone once a year with uh, blood all over the place and everything. I mean, if God created people and wanted to have fellowship with them, and isn't that the whole idea, the promise to Abraham and, and everything since then was that I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. I want to have fellowship with you. The fellowship that I had with Adam and Eve in the garden, I want to restore that. I want to have it with you. And yet he's saying, really, in that system, it was a pretty sad. I mean, no one could even come in except for the high priest. It didn't really help anyone. And he said, the truth is, for the high priest, it didn't even help him. He was able to come in once a year. But hey, sometimes if he came in and made a mistake, he would die right there. He would have to sacrifice for himself, deal with what he had to do in there, and he couldn't wait to get out. As opposed to, as he's going to point out, as he's pointed out already in the book, this opportunity in the new covenant that we have to come boldly to enter in like that. And so he's saying, look, that didn't work. It was a ritual. And there in, in verse 10, as he says, it was concerned with food and drink and washings and fleshly ordinances. And, and in verse 9, it says that, you know, performing the service, it, it, it couldn't even make him perfect in regard to the conscience. See, the whole issue, he's saying, is God wanted to deal with people who could deal with him openly and freely. And even in that system, 
The priest was going through the motions. The priest was performing religious rituals. And yet, was it ultimately something that was much more than that? And he says, hey, when it came down to the conscience, when it came down to really, that priest knew, here I am, I'm in the Holy of Holies, but I'm like an intruder there. I don't belong here. If I mess up, I'm going to die. And the sacrifices that I've done, I'm going to have to come back and do it again every time. And that's just going to go on and on and on. There was never a conscious fellowship. The priest didn't go in there and just go, oh, God, I worship you. It's so great to be in your presence. He went in scared to death, did the sacrifices and couldn't wait to get out because in his conscience, he knew it wasn't right. And in people's minds and in their hearts, when they would bring an animal and they would put their hands on the head of the animal and then kill it, and then that was offered for them, deep down inside, they knew that didn't make them a better person. Deep down inside, they realized that all of that ritual, it's just that. It's just ritual. And so, as he's saying here in calling, hey, it's just food and drink and washings and ordinances. It couldn't work on the conscience. And the truth is, religion is always that way. Oh, you can appreciate the beauty of it, but then you sit and look at it and go, is this really going to do me any good? If I bring my child and have them baptized, is that really going to assure them of salvation eternally? Then let's just set it up at the hospital. Let's sprinkle every kid that's born and, you know, then let's just live like however we want to live. I think even people who are very, very religious have to have a sense that, you know, this isn't working. It's nice. I enjoy it. We do it because we've always done it and my parents did it. I did a, a uh, funeral the other day, and the person who had died, there, one, half of the family is Christians and half the family was uh, Catholics. And so I shared the service with the Catholic priest. And he went out there, and, and it was funny because talking to him beforehand, he's saying, okay, now I'm just going to do my little Catholic stuff. He goes, I'll go sprinkle my water and everything, and I'll get it over with, and then I'll leave, and then you can do what you're going to do. And it was like... And this guy, he was a very nice guy. He's, he works as a stand-up comic some of the time when he's not priesting. But, I, but he was a very nice guy. But I got the sense of talking to him beforehand, like, boy, you're a nice guy, but you're literally going through the motions. And he was a guy, actually, they just got him because he was, um, you know, he, he works a lot of funerals out in that area. And I thought, as I was watching him going through the motions, I was thinking, does anyone really think that this does something? Does anyone really think that somehow this is going to satisfy the problem that mankind has? And I don't want to just pick on the Catholics. I'll pick on other people, too. No, I, I don't want to pick on anybody. It's the fact is Judaism was created by God. It was invented by God. And yet the author of Hebrews is going... Didn't you ever know in your heart it really wasn't working? And, and why throughout the prophets was there that constant prophecy that there was something better that was coming and that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin? You can't kill an animal and have a person be okay in their heart. And the same thing goes for any other ritual. You know, there are people who believe that because they go to church, or because they pray every day or read their daily bread or whatever, that somehow they're okay with God. 
And we need to understand, it's so important to understand, we are only okay with God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that makes us okay with God. Just receiving that work of God, just receiving that forgiveness. And nothing else can be added to that and have any kind of real meaning or significance. And so, and, and that's kind of a shock to people. You mean, if I don't ever put money in the offering, God loves me just as much? Yeah. If I don't ever go to church, he loves me just as much? Yeah, if you've really received him. I mean, the Bible says that if you're really a Christian, you'll want to do those things, but not to gain standing with God. God doesn't get mad at you if you've been shining him on for a while. It, all of those kinds of ideas are based on the idea that somehow we are doing something that is effective in bringing about a work of God in our lives, and that's just not the case. And when we realize how flimsy all of our you know, efforts are, then we come to understand more and more, wow, those rituals, those little things that we try to do. You mean at Christmas when I drop money into Santa Claus's little you know, bucket there at Target, it's not going to do me any good with God? No. It's not. It really isn't. And, and, and that's, his, that's his point here. Hey, look, you should have known. Come on, are you stupid? You think killing an animal can save a person? How does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. Killing animals was never able to save people. Going through rituals, partaking in ceremony, following rules, that could never save anyone. It's... It is archaic, but it was a picture of someone who would come who would be able to do it, and that's what it was there for, and that's why it's valuable. Understand this, people in the Old Testament didn't get saved by sacrifices and burnt offerings and celebrations and all of those things following the law. They never got saved that way. That wasn't what it was for. It was only a picture. In the Old Testament, as in the New, people can only be saved by faith. People can only be saved by God's grace. Nothing's changed in that respect. It's just that they had to look forward and believe that God was going to one day be able to take care of their sins. And we look back and understand that that's what he has done for us. That's why people in the Old Testament, when they died, if they were people who loved God, who had faith in God, they couldn't go into the presence of God. They went into a place that Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. Until after Jesus died, he was able to lead forth captive captives and take them from that spot, that holding tank, into the presence of God where they are today. Because that sacrificial system didn't work. So why would you want to return to something that doesn't work? Why would you want to fall back into a system that was a picture of something that you can have in reality where finally, for once, you can actually have your conscience clean? You can actually know that you're okay with God, not by relationship, not by hope, not by ceremony. No one in the Old Testament felt the kind of assurance that we ought to feel knowing what Jesus Christ has done for it. The, the new covenant, it's so vastly superior in every way. So he goes on to say, contrasted with this Old Testament religion, he said in verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
And not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how how much more shall he cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So he's saying, if that system was a picture of what Jesus did, and that tabernacle, they had to go through the motions of hauling that tent around, setting it up, taking it down, hauling it away. The glory of God was ascending on it. They had the gold box. They had all the stuff, slaughtering all of those animals. If that was something that was depicting something that was going to happen, and now it's happened, instead of entering into a tent, Jesus Christ entered into the true tabernacle, the presence of God having shed his own blood, and now God says that was what it was about. This works. This is worth it. This is what solves the problem. And so he's going, kind of, if, they would, if you wanted to go through all the ritual, then why not accept that the, what has actually happened has now been accomplished, that now we're in business. We've got it made. Why would you want to return to something like that? And, and so he talks about Jesus being offered and how he can cleanse your conscience from dead works, not from your sin. Cleanse your conscience from the law to serve the living God. He says in the new covenant, again, it's the idea he wants to work within your heart, work with you personally, know you intimately. And he says, because of that and because that's the way it is, look, why would you want to go back to dead works? Why would you go back to something that you know didn't work? Has there been one person in all the history of Israel that got saved by following the law and by sacrifices? And the Bible tells us again and again and again, no. Sacrifice cannot take away sin, that kind of sacrifice. And so he says, realize this. Your conscience can be clean. There doesn't have to be anything in your heart that, that separates you from God. That's what he says, I'm saying, this is the new covenant. This is what it's all about. Now, why in the world would you want to go back to the old deal? Because the truth is, and this can happen. I've seen this happen in people. They become a Christian. Maybe they've tried to be religious. Maybe they haven't. But they knew in their heart that something wasn't right. They knew in their heart that they weren't in fellowship with God. And so someone presents the gospel just simply and beautifully, and they go, wow, that's what I want. And they accept Jesus, and they feel so clean. They've never felt so good in their lives. They go to bed just going, oh, man, this is awesome. I'm right with God. I know him. I hear him. He's speaking to me. I open his word. It comes alive. And and they experience that work of the Spirit in their lives. But over a period of time, sometimes they start to wonder if it's enough. They start to think, I need to add something to this. It's time for me to grow up a little. And so I need to discipline myself. I need to start adding a few rules and regulations in order to really make this work. Not that God doesn't want to change our lives. Of of course he wants to change them. But he doesn't want us to change them. He wants to change them. And so what happens? Christians who have been Christians for a while start to gravitate toward a more and more legalistic relationship with God. 
And through so doing, you know what happens eventually? At first, it's great. Because at first, I make all the rules to fit with the way that I am. And so I lay it all out there and I go, okay, a good Christian is like me. And I look at the rules I create and I have scriptures to back them up. And I go, that's my life. That's the way life ought to be. And so very easily, you know, I can, I can get up and talk about, you know, here's the way a Christian ought to be. Here's the kind of person that God wants you to be, the person that God uses and so on. And I can feel pretty good because what I do is I just paint a picture of myself. And I go, you know, God's obviously using me. So this is the way he wants people to be. And I start to point the finger at other people who don't follow my rules. And I begin to judge them. And I feel pretty good. I feel pretty prideful. I feel like, hey, I'm, I'm becoming mature. Oh, I remember as a young Christian, I was really struggling. But now, who praise God, I'm just about ready for heaven. And that becomes, it is, it's a great feeling. And then usually that leads to people putting you in positions of ministry, asking you to do different things and opening, you know, and it, God starts to bless your ministry and maybe you're teaching a Bible study and all kinds of people are coming and you start to think, I, I'm doing this so good. It's really a shame that I'm not a pastor. I, I really can't afford to be a pastor, but I'm better than most pastors. And, I, and, and we start to think, yeah, I'm all right. I'm pretty good. But what happens eventually is that you're going to break your own rules. You're going to step across a line somewhere that you swore you'd never step across. And then you look, you're confronted, and maybe you just get busted. I've known guys who are very super spiritual as Christians, and then they get caught doing something illegal in their business, and they end up going to jail. And it's like, it's great to have a jail testimony about, you know, before I was a Christian, I did all this stuff and went to jail. But it's really embarrassing when you teach a home fellowship and you go to jail for breaking the law and, you know, cheating on your taxes. And it's like, oh, man, this doesn't even work for a testimony. And then you think, well, at least someday I'll rededicate my life and then it'll kind of work. But, but you end up just going, oh, no, I'm not as good as I thought I was. You'll find out. Somebody will point it out to you. Your Nathan is going to come along and say, thou art the man. And you're going to go, oh, you're right. It happens to me sometimes when maybe I've become kind of self-righteous toward people who have a problem in a particular area. And I haven't had a problem in that area for 30 years or something. And then I'm reading the Bible and God just nails me. God will just show, or I will feel myself starting to say something that I've heard other people say and I would just how could they even think like that why would someone say something like that that's just awful I you know I gotta question somebody's salvation if they could say something like that and there it is in my head it's ready to come out I'm thinking it I choke it off and then I go oh man I thought I was doing pretty good and now my conscience just convicts me I feel like dirt Hey, some people come to church every Sunday and go away feeling really bad. I hope that's not my fault. But why does that happen? Why is it that Christians start feeling condemned all the time when the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? So why are you getting beat up and condemned all the time? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Because you grew past grace and you began to think that somehow obedience, the law, living the right life, living the godly life, whatever you want to call it, you started to think that you could earn it. You started to think that you're pretty good. And when you fall into that kind of a 
thinking when ultimately you decide to try a little new covenant, a little old covenant, kind of mix them up? The conscience becomes injured and wounded. We become hurt. We become convicted every time we, we listen to the word. It's nailing us for dumb little things, and we try to put it out of our minds. We go, oh, no, that can't be, you know, that can't be the Lord. You know, a funny thing happened the other day. I was driving on the freeway really fast, and I just felt this conviction. And, and, but come on, you know, I've seen how Pastor Dave drives. If he's not convicted about it, why should I be? And, and no, be careful. If you start to live, if you return to that old covenant way of thinking, and you start to earn you're standing with God. Be careful because the conscience can only be clean when you realize, when I recognize that it's all about him, that it's what he is doing. And I find an amazing thing that when I am just living my life honestly and openly before God, when I'm opening my life to him and admitting my faults, when I'm, when I'm not making any claim to myself that I have risen to a certain level, God starts giving me victory in areas that are surprising, in areas where I could continue to sin and that nobody would really question me because everyone does it, in areas where I, you know, these little things that you just kind of excuse as being your temperament, and then you see God starting to give you the victory. And it's a wonderful thing when God does that from within. And it's also a wonderful thing when you can look at your life and realize that you're a sinner and realize that you fail consistently and constantly and not get just totally grieved by that because you understand that God loves you anyway, that it's his work in our life that really matters. And believe me, and, and I know there are people who get nervous when I even talk like this because it sounds like, hey, no laws, no rules, do whatever you want. No, not at all. But what it is is you allow God to work in your heart and he will make you righteous. It is God who, you know, Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's a work of him. Even our sanctification is something that he has to do. He doesn't turn it over to us to take care of any particular area. And the amazing thing is when we understand that, it changes our lives. When we don't understand it, we become convicted, we become embarrassed, and humiliated when our failure confronts us and we've been claiming to be something that we aren't. And oh man, what, a, what an awful sight. What a sorry thing it is. Like a TV evangelist that called other evangelists a cancer on the body of Christ publicly and then became humiliated for repeatedly getting caught with prostitutes himself. What happens? Well, you go from the new covenant and you start to live in the old covenant again and you mix them up and it does not work. And the fact is, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And when we start to think we're pretty righteous, then we better be really careful because God has ways of humbling us in ways that we can't imagine. I've been there thousands of times. I'm sure you have too. Again, to the, to the Christians here in Hebrews, the idea, don't you understand? You've got a better deal than that. Don't return to that old way of thinking. Don't return to that old way of living. It's only a way that causes outward conformity, and it is not a way that will ever stimulate your heart to actual change. It's not, it's not by might or power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's the way he's wanted to always deal with us. 
And if we reject the leading of the Spirit, if we decide that, no, you know, the Christian life, really, you don't have, there's nothing tricky about it. It's just follow these 10 steps, follow these 12 ways, do, you know, honor these principles, do this, do that, obey this verse. And all you have to do is just do what God says, trust and obey, no other way to be happy in Jesus. It isn't just about our obedience. If it was, we're sunk. Our obedience is lousy at best. But what it's about is him working in our lives. And when, when that happens, not only does our conscience be freed up, not only does our conscience be freed up, not only is our conscience freed up, but God does a work inside and we change from the inside out. And it's not something that we strive to do so we don't have to be all stressed out about continuing in it. It's simply let him work in our lives. That's what it's about. Now he goes on, and this passage here in, from verses 16 through 22, he, he's giving the covenant now as a picture of a will, like a last will and testament that someone gives. And he says, wherever there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament's in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. In other words, there are things that you can do there are ways in which you can give your possessions to your heirs and you're not going to pay income tax. And it's going to be not very complicated if the will is written correctly or if the living trust is written correctly. Ways in which you can do things by your death that you can't do while you're alive. That's always the case legally. And he's saying that's the way it is. Now, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. So he said even the whole old covenant was all about death. It was all about blood. But, he said, then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So he says in a will there's good news and bad news. Yeah, there are there is a way that through your will you can pass on things to others. And they knew an animal dying doesn't leave you much of anything maybe their wool or something. But he said, understand this, this whole picture of blood was about Jesus. And what he has offered to you in the new covenant, the new testament, the new last will and testament, he could give it because he would die. And he needed to die in order for him to be able to transfer that efficacy to us in order for him to take what he wanted to do in our lives all along and actually do it, the only way it was gonna happen is if he died. He died and he left for us an inheritance. He, uh, he was able to deal with the sin problem by him doing that. Now, understanding, let me say this, understanding the nature of substitutionary atonement, understanding the nature of Jesus dying and having that provide you know, something that would take care of our sins and everything. I don't completely understand how that works. I don't know why it was that it was set up that somebody had to die, a perfect man who was God had to die and rise from the dead in order for our sins to be forgiven. I, I, don't, I don't know. 
But I know it's true because the Bible just says it repeatedly again and again and again. And somehow I think there's something central in this passage as, as they're explaining that this is a testament. This is something that could be granted upon someone's death. And I don't understand it completely, but I believe it. That somehow when he died, he was able to leave to us the idea, the, the principle, the actual work in our hearts that now sin was taken care of. That now there was no more reason for us to feel condemned, no more reason for us to bear guilt, no more reason for us to live in uh, a distance from the Holy of Holies. No more reason for us to, to think of God as that guy way out there somewhere that we could never know. His will names us and says, you're forgiven. You're taken care of. I've covered it. And I'm not going to question that. He goes on then to say, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So if that which happened on earth in the tabernacle was a picture of something that was to happen in the heavenly realm, obviously the heavenly one is going to be much superior. You wouldn't have a copy of something that's better than the original. You wouldn't have a picture of something that you would prefer to the actual thing. It's a symbol. It looks forward to it, but it's not it. And he says, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. He's not in some kind of a man-made religion, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So again, Jesus as our high priest hasn't walked into a tent that he has to bloody up himself, that he's only allowed to go into once a year himself, that he has to have a rope around his ankle so if he goes in there and goofs up, he dies and they can yank him out. But no, he, he hasn't gone into a man-made tent to play religious games. He's not just out there playing with a replica of something. You know, there are guys who create these tabernacle replicas, and I hope you've had a chance to see them. They're really interesting, and every year they, you know, someone comes around and they'll set up on a field, a, you know, a replica of the tabernacle. But I've gone through them, and, you know, you walk into the Holy of Holies, nothing happens. There's a wood box there painted gold. You don't have a feeling at all, and some people do. I, maybe I'm not like everyone else, but, you know, there are people who go in there and go, you know, you could just feel the presence of God in this thing. I'm going, it's a cheesy tent, you know, with fake boxes. I mean, if it was real gold, maybe. I, but I'm one of those people, too, when I walked in, when I go to Israel and I walk where Jesus walked, it doesn't feel all that spooky either. So, you know, but, but this is exactly what he's saying. He's going, look, it's just, that's just man-made stuff. Jesus Christ is in heaven. He went to the real thing. He's not, it's not a reenactment. You know, it's not something where, you know, they're just kind of going through the motions. It's not like guys, and I'm not knocking this. I have a lot of friends who, or several friends who do it, and I think it's kind of cool. But these guys that dress up like Civil War soldiers and fight Civil War battles and stuff, I mean, okay. But it's like, that's not the Civil War where we lost, you know, half a million people on American soil. It's different. It's just guys playing around. And it's okay, and again, I'm not knocking it. Okay, I am knocking it, but um, it's just a game. Deal with it, you know? And, and that's what he's saying here. The tabernacle is a tent. It was man-made. It's not like the real thing. 
It may, it may give a beautiful picture of the real thing. It might be something that causes you to be able to relate to in a more tangible way the real thing. It may be educational. It, it may be all kinds of stuff. But it's not the real one. And that's what he's saying about the tabernacle. And so, you know, he went in and, and was offered once. In verse, uh, well, verse 27 says, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Many of you have heard verse 27 quoted, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And usually we think of that as a, as a verse that's saying, obviously there's no reincarnation. Well, with or without this verse, come on, it's obvious there's no reincarnation. This is a stupid idea. But that's not what this verse is talking about. What the verse is saying is the priests, they would go in every year. If they were actually going to do anything, they should have gone in there and died. But there's no way to bring them back and do it again, and we would run out of priests pretty soon. But he said, death is real. That's the real thing. Killing animals in exchange for people, that's not real. But killing a person, that's real. And that's really what it's all about. That's the problem. Ever since Genesis 3, it has been appointed unto man to die. You're born and you die. And yes, there are exceptions. There are a few exceptions. Lazarus, as far as we know, died twice. Elijah didn't die at all, neither did Enoch. Um, Moses died, but, you know, it says he died, and he was the one who wrote the book. So, you know, you I'm not sure what that's all about. But um, <laughs> he says, look, people live and they die. Now, Jesus didn't go pretend to offer himself. He didn't go in like these priests and be a picture of something. He went in there and he really died. He really gave his life. And that has significance to all of us who are under a death sentence. Because our problem is death. If we weren't going to die, you know, what's the problem? We could deal with it, whatever it is. But because this world in its fallen state means that the people who are born end up dying as Several people have said, you know, the statistics are still pretty impressive. One out of every one person who lives dies. And that's true. But he's gone, hey, Jesus died once, but he rose from the dead. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Jesus died, and then he's in heaven, and he's able to make an offering of himself. And as a result, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he'll appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He is coming back. The priest who went into the Holy of Holies and died in there, he's not coming back. Well, except as they reel him out on the end of a rope. But Jesus Christ went and offered the sacrifice once and for all. One person offering himself for many. And he's coming back to prove it. And he's coming back to save us. And so, again, this glorious truth that we celebrate on Easter is a truth that, that the author of Hebrews is saying, why in the world would you want the old deal? Why would you get all excited because maybe they're going to rebuild the temple or maybe this, you know, maybe we could get this going or maybe we need to get a little more ritual into our religion or something. Why would you want to do that? He died once. Remember, that's why Moses wasn't able to go into the promised land. 
because he struck the rock, which was a picture of Jesus Christ, and water came forth. And then the next time God said, speak to the rock, and he struck it. And it messed up the picture because the whole picture was he only needs to be stricken once. Then all you have to do is speak to him. But Moses goofed that up by striking it twice. And now God's going, great, I can't even use that as a great people are going to say, well, wasn't the rock stricken twice? Maybe Jesus needs to die again. No, he said, no, once. That was the deal. It worked. The reason the priest had to keep going in day after day after day is because it doesn't work. But Jesus Christ entering into the Holy of Holies, Jesus Christ dying, raising from the dead, being at the right hand of the Father, sitting there making intercession for us, returning one day for us, that's what works. That's what we've been looking for. Why do you want to return to something else, he's saying. For, in verse 1 of chapter 10, the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Doesn't work. For then would they not have quit being offered? If the sacrifice worked, why'd you have to keep doing it? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. They would have felt like, man, we went, we did our sacrifice, and it's awesome. Our sins are forgiven. We're in fellowship with God. Let's all just go into the Holy of Holies. No, don't. <laughs> Lightning, thunder. Oh, man. I felt so good. No, they didn't feel good. They knew. Their conscience told them. They still had the sin problem. And so he says, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They realized, as we do when we try to reform our lives, when it comes down to the end of December and we start to list all of the, you know, New Year's resolutions we're going to do. Have you ever had it where you made a bunch of them and then that year you did everything that you set out to do? It's like, wow, I've become exactly what I wanted to be. I finally am living. The, I, the other day, Monday, I was in my office digging. I have all these old files. And when I moved, when I came here from, from Calvary, I was just, you know, throw everything in boxes and bring it in. And so I'm starting to go through and throw stuff out. And I found an interesting thing that I had written in 1994. And I guess I had probably gone to a seminar or read a book about setting goals or something. And so I had all these things spiritually that I wanted to do in 1994. I almost kept it because it would be a pretty good one for 2004, but I look at it and go, okay, I've grown some in some of these areas, but really the same things I wanted to do then, there if I made resolutions today, they'd be the same ones because in our own flesh, we can try to reform ourselves, but it doesn't work. And that's what he's saying here. They knew even as it was happening, this isn't working. It doesn't work like this. And then he goes on to say, it's not possible that you can kill an animal and it's going to take your sins away. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So here again, we talked about this quotation from Psalm 40 on uh, last Sunday morning, but it's taking that picture that, that, that David had in the Old Testament and saying, don't you ever get the feeling that sacrifices and, you know, God's going, 
what do I, what are you doing this for? Why are you even going through this motion? Well, God, it was your idea, you did it. Yeah, I know, but there's something more I want. I'm not just trying to get you, I'm not just trying to see how many animals I can get you to kill. I'm not just trying to get you to be like an ant farm that's you, to kind of watch what you're doing like it's some big experiment. You know, I'm not this God that's just thinking, I bet if I can get him to do all this stuff, that'll be really great. He's going, God said over and over again, that's not what it's about. And so as he says that Jesus said, I didn't want that, a body you have prepared for me. I don't take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's doing your will. That's what matters. And so this picture of the new covenant instituted by Jesus Christ, who came, who said, I've come to do your will. Well, you've prepared a body for me. For me to do it, for me to pull this off, I'm going to have to become a man. I'm going to have to become one of them, live that life, be tempted with everything as they are, lay my life down, rise from the dead, and allow them to be saved by their relationship to me, by the fact that I am allowed to pass on what I paid for to my family to my relatives. And, and again, the statement in the volume of the book it is written of me, the idea is, this is what it's been all about. The old covenant, it was it. Every, all throughout it, you see, this is something that's looking forward. This is a picture that's being painted. Now we've seen the reality. And so then previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burn offerings and offerings for sin you didn't desire or had pleasure in them. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So he's saying his commentary on Psalm 40 is that Jesus was actually saying there through David, all of that old system is not what I was looking for. It was me coming in my body to do the will of God. That's what it was. And he says he was putting away the old in order to bring in the new. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. The priest's job was never done. The priest, as long as he would remain a priest, would be killing animal after animal after animal, coming in if he's the high priest, year after year after year on Yom Kippur into the Holy of Holies. And it didn't work because he had to keep doing it. But Jesus, when he offered himself, it says he sat down. A priest could never say, oh, I'm glad that's over. I'm glad I'm taken care of. I'm glad the sins of the people have been forgiven. No way. You read through Leviticus and you see it, just more sacrifices and more sacrifices and more to do and more rituals and more ceremonies and more rules to keep and more pictures to paint of something or constructions to, to do that would depict something that was going to come in the future. But when Jesus hung on the cross and when he said, it is finished, then as he went into the, to the right hand of God, he could sit down. He could say, you know, I'm done. How many of us have the opportunity ever in life to feel like we've really finished something? We're really at a stopping point. It's a great feeling when you're in the middle of a big project and you finally come to at least a point where you can stop for a little bit and take a break. But that's what Jesus is doing for all of eternity as he sits at the right hand of the Father because it worked. 
because when he said it was finished, it was. It was over. The price had been paid. And so, he goes on to say, by one offering he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Perfected forever, he's talking about you. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Again, that's the quote from Jeremiah 31. And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And so he says, look at the deal we've got. Look at what God has done for us. As he says, now I'm going to do a work in your heart. Your conscience had been convicting you all along. You knew you weren't good enough. You knew you couldn't measure up. And now he says, hey, I'm going to place my spirit. I'm going to place my word. I'm going to place my will, my heart in yours. I'm going to do a transplant. And when that happens, then you'll realize, wow, this is what it was about. This is how it's supposed to work. And he says, you know, that even when Jeremiah talks about that, he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Jeremiah was speaking prophetically in the future. It was God speaking through Jeremiah. It wasn't something that someone in the Old Testament could even relate to. And yet I'm sure that priest, after working hard day after day after day, handling all that blood and those dead animals and dealing with the people and always afraid that he was going to do the wrong thing and be pulled out by a rope. And, and after dealing with all of that for his whole life, imagine how a priest would have felt if the, if the promise was put out and said, you know, there's a sacrifice that's just going to have to be done once. And when it's done, I'm going to forget all about your sins. I will not remember them anymore. Because the Jews, the priests who would come into the tabernacle, the problem was he knew. God knew his sin. God remembered him. God knew what had happened. But if he had been told, you know, God forgave him. He forgot him. They're gone. If you go in there and you start offering sacrifices, God's going to go, what are you doing? Well, you know, sin. Uh, you know, we've sinned. And God goes, Really? I don't remember you sinning. Do you understand the incredible grace of God that can fulfill this in our lives? That when we, and there are people who sometimes think that, that, you know, oh, we need to go and ask him to forgive every sin each time we do it and everything. And we do need to confess our sins. To confess means to say the same thing. It means that what God calls sin, we call sin. But we don't confess our sin for his benefit. We don't confess our sins so that he'll go, oh yeah, I've been waiting for you to do that on that sin. When we go to him and we confess our sins and we talk to him about our failure, he goes, really? I don't remember that. Great. Come on. I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're here. But when you were sinning, that wasn't keeping me from you. It was keeping you from me. It was holding you back from entering. And it wasn't me. It wasn't my problem. And so again, it, just this incredible truth that the Holy of Holies is opened up and God can't remember your sins anymore. And he says, now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. You don't need to, you can't come in and do something. The, the whole notion of paying for your sins, doing penance for your sins, feeling like, oh man, I really blew it, so now I need to do something to make it right with God. 
I need to maybe, you know, say some Hail Mary. Oh, I don't want to pick on the Catholics all night. Um, you know, I, I need to go do some good deeds in order to make up for my failure. No, you don't. No, you can't. What you do doesn't have anything to do with sin. It can't pay for sin. The best thing you could ever do. You know, if you went and collected all of your assets and you just turned it over to starving people, it's not going to make you right with God. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, you're already right with God. And he's going to go, well, what's all this stuff for? What's this about? If you're not right with God, you haven't accepted Jesus Christ, then all of the good you do in the world won't mean a thing. You can be Bill Gates with his billions of dollars, and you can start dishing it out. You can start doling it out to every charity known to mankind. You can heal every disease. You can do everything that he can possibly do. And he still, when he faces God, Bill Gates is just going to be asked one question. What did you do with Jesus Christ? And all of that stuff that he's done to make the world a better place isn't going to matter. You know, George Bush, with all that's being accomplished right now in the world, and it's great, but... The only reason he has standing with God is because of Jesus Christ, because he's accepted him. And you know what's amazing? Saddam Hussein, with all that he has done, as far as God's concerned, if he would, if he did, has, if he will, who knows if he's alive or not, but if Saddam Hussein, if in his dying moment on his, on his deathbed, were to say, God be merciful to me, a sinner, then he and George Bush can walk side by side into heaven. God's not going to go, okay, Sodom, I have some work for you. You're going to, you know, I'm going to punish you. You're going to be a servant. Bush, <laughs> way to go, man. You brought back that spirit of Americanism. You, you wiped out all those weapons of mass destruction. You, you gave the Iraqi people the freedom to go steal everything in sight. Hey, way to go, you know. And no, it doesn't work that way. We don't earn anything with God. He has done it all. Jesus has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He doesn't remember our sins. He chooses not to. That's what was accomplished on the cross. And so he says, therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let's draw near. He goes, since this, you have this opportunity, come on, let's go. Let's check it out. I saw that with some of these, with some of these Iraqi palaces, and all the ornate furniture and everything. First, it was like they're checking it out. They're, you know, is this, wow, there's really nobody here. Come on, the guys are going in there taking showers and with gold fixtures and they're kicking their feet up on the furniture and they're like, wow, this is great. Well, we have something so much more incredibly magnificent, so much more ornate, so much more fulfilling and rewarding. And Jesus is, he goes in and he goes, come on, man, let's go. And if we have that kind of deal, he says, come on, man, let's go. Let's do it. Let's go in a new and living way. Let's draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, realizing that it's not about us anymore, and so now our hearts are clean. Now they've been taken care of. There is no reason for Christians to walk around with guilty consciences. 
There's no reason for Christians to, to feel that somehow they're under condemnation. There's no reason for me or for you or for anyone else to make you feel condemned because God doesn't. He doesn't see it that way at all. He's going, no, come on, it's taken care of. It's been dealt with. Let's draw near. And let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So he's saying you have all these benefits. You can come before God. You can know that you're right with him. Your conscience can be clean. Your heart can be in perfect fellowship with him. We get to be together and talk about this stuff. We can enjoy our fellowship. So as a result, man, let's encourage each other to remember what he's done for us. And to, and to encourage each other to love each other. And to do the right things and to enter into fellowship with each other. Because all that stuff that might seem like a burden if you're doing it for um, to earn something with God, when you just get to do it, when you get to do it because of what he's accomplished, it takes on a whole new meaning and significance. Good works that are performed in order to somehow fix your relationship with God, you resent them and they're miserable. But good works that come out of a heart of expression of gratefulness for what God has done, oh, that's glorious. And getting together as Christians, he says, hey, some people are forsaking the assembling. Some people are saying, yeah, you don't need to go to church. But he's going, are you kidding? When we can come boldly, when a bunch of us can get together and let's go crash the palace. Let's go spend time in the presence of God. Let's go spend time worshiping him. Oh, do we have to do that again? No, we don't have to do it. We get to do it. And if our heart's right before God, we'll enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Because your heart's not right. But when your heart's right, you enjoy what being a Christian, the way it works itself out. You enjoy obeying him. You enjoy worshiping him. You enjoy fellowshipping with others. If that stuff all seems like a drag to you and you're doing it to go through the motions, take a break. Don't do it. And instead, spend your time, instead of coming to church, spend your time in the presence of God. Spend your time in his word, in fellowship with him, praying, crying out to him, going, God, what's wrong? I, don't, I can't stand your people. I don't like to worship you. I don't feel like obeying you. And dump that before him and let him do that work in your heart. Let him place his Holy Spirit and that power of the Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit. Let him do that work so that then you can do it on autopilot. I have spent days of my life being religious, and I've spent a lot of days of my life just free and enjoying the presence of God and, and being with Him and being in fellowship with Him, and I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever want to relate to Him the way that I did when I was religious. I want to relate to Him by His working in my heart. I want the new covenant. I don't want the old covenant. And I want to steer, steer clear of anything in my Christian life that starts to look like that, that starts to feel like it, that leads to condemnation that he says isn't there, that causes me to dwell on sins that he says he can't remember. That's a, the enemy wants to do that to us, to make us think that it's all about us cleaning up our act. It's all about we can't clean up our act. And so as a result, enjoy the benefits. It's so awesome to live in the freedom 
that's in Jesus Christ in the new covenant. And he goes, God, why wouldn't you want to do it? Boy, can I finish this chapter? For if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of How much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amazing. He's just talking about, look, you can come boldly. We can stimulate each other to love and to good works. We can enjoy the fact that God has forgotten our sins. But then he says, be careful. Because if you decide to look the other way from this new covenant, if you decide, no, you know, I think I'm going to stick with kind of a mixture of old and new. I think I'm going to do it myself. I can handle this on my own. He goes, look, there's nothing else. No other sacrifice can be made except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You can sacrifice yourself. You can pour your whole life out thinking that's going to matter. And that's not going to do what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ did. And then he said, you're going to answer to God because he opened the way. He ripped the veil. He opened the door. You can just, you ask and you can walk boldly into the presence of God. And you have this opportunity. And if you don't take it, be careful. Because with the law, if you just said, eh, I don't care about the law, oh man, you were judged. You were judged severely. And he said, don't think that it's a different God now. Don't think that God turned into Santa Claus and now he's just, oh, everybody sit on my lap. It's okay. No, he still cares about what's right and wrong. He still cares about the fact that, that Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could have that access. And he goes, if you don't want that access, you better be scared. You better worry. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, it's a joyous thing to burst into the presence of the living God, to come on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done and to go, God, thanks. I'm here as a sinner. I'm here as someone who can't offer a thing. And I'm just glad to be with you. And I'm glad to be in fellowship with you. But on the other hand, if you're going to make light of what it cost him, if you're going to live your life trampling the Son of God underfoot, saying, oh yeah, he did it for me, yeah, he died and whatever, but it really doesn't have anything to do with me. And you don't come boldly, you don't draw near to him, you don't live a life in fellowship with him. And, and you think, you hear about all the grace and you go, oh man, grace is a wonderful thing. So now I go out of here and I don't, have to, I don't have to do anything. Well, you don't have to do anything to earn your standing with God. But if you take for granted what he has done for you, and if you decide that somehow you can do it on your own, well, you better be afraid. You have something to be afraid of. Because even though the road is so simple, even though the way to Jesus Christ is so obvious and clear from Genesis to Revelation, there it is. The path to come boldly before the throne of grace is laid out right before you. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. 
Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. How is it that most people in this world are going to end up burning in hell when God has made it so easy for them to be in fellowship with him? I don't know. I don't understand it. Why in the world would anyone opt for something other than direct access to the throne of God? But most people do. And the author of Hebrews, again, is making a warning. He's going, look, this is great, and I don't want you to miss it. But understand this. If you miss it, you're in big trouble. You're going to have hell to pay. Because if you will not accept the new covenant and you try to get saved by the old covenant or you make up your own covenant or you just decide, I'm not even going to think about it, I'm not going to deal with it. Understand this, the picture in the Old Testament of wandering in the wilderness, of being in judgment, of all of these things happening, God pouring plagues out on people and so on, as much as the tabernacle is a picture of the real thing in heaven, the suffering that those who rejected God's provision, that's very real too. And as much as, as the presence of God and the glory that is in his presence, as much as that is so much to, superior to somebody's cardboard tabernacle, hell is going to be way worse than anything you've ever experienced on this earth. If you decide to reject Jesus Christ and what he's offered for you, you may think, oh, you know, I've already lived hell. No, you haven't. You have no idea. It's so much more fearful than anything you'll ever face on this earth. And, and it's true. And he says, but remember the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations. He goes on to say, hey, you guys had compassion for me. You suffered yourself. Things were going pretty well for you. Therefore, verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That's kind of, in a way, a rehash of Hebrews 6 that we studied a couple weeks ago. That what he's saying is, and obviously we don't have time to untangle all of the complications of it, but the bottom line is he's going, make sure that you're for real. We're talking about real life, real death that's at stake. Make sure that you have the real thing. Don't fall back. Don't slip away. Don't turn your back on what he has done for you. How do you know? Well, if you're coming boldly before the throne of grace, you have no problem. If you're coming before him, if you're assembling with the saints, if you're stimulating each other to love and good works, one's like, hey, don't even worry about it. He's going, you don't have to worry if that's the case. But if somehow you find yourself in a spot where you've turned your back on the, on the new covenant and you either return to the old covenant or you make your own deal, then he says, I'm just warning you, it happens. I don't believe that Paul would have made these warning passages in Hebrews if they weren't possible. It happens. There are people who are illuminated. There are people who hear the truth. They understand it. They go, I like this. And somehow it just doesn't take. What happens? How do you make sense of it when the seed falls on soil and it just doesn't grow? Or it sprouts up and then gets blown away? How do you make sense of that? I don't know. I can't for the life of me understand why someone, after really entering into the relationship of grace that is provided by Jesus Christ. Why would you ever turn back? But he's saying, be careful. Make sure you don't. It's just a reminder. The road that we're on is narrow. 
the broad road uh, leads to a place you don't want to go. Let's pray. Lord, as we read the Old Covenant, you say that it's good, and we know that it, boy, in so many glorious ways, paints a picture of a reality. And yet I think most people know that being good, following rules, attending services, making sacrifices, killing animals, it doesn't cut it. It can't cause our hearts to feel the freedom, even for one second, that we feel when we understand your grace, when we understand what it means that you can't remember what we did anymore, and that privilege that we have to come boldly before you. Oh, thank you that Jesus said it's finished and then sat down like a guy who just got off work. Lord, help us to live in the reality of that and to never return to a religion that's just rituals, to never return to a way of life that centers around following the rules. But God, we need that work of your spirit in our lives so that you can give us the righteousness that we could never get on our own any other way. Lord, if there are people here tonight who well, they've been hanging around, but they're flirting with the idea of turning back. They're wondering if it's really worth being with you. Or maybe they've never really entered into a relationship with you at all. Oh God, help them to understand the glory of your grace and at the same time the horror of doing it on our own, of falling into the hands of a living God. And Lord, help them to know that it's just a choice away from putting themselves into the very presence of God, into the very Holy of Holies. Lord, thank you. Help us to take this seriously. And help us to understand as we face these holidays, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, help us to realize this is real. This really happened. It's not just a beautiful tradition that speaks about value, but that you actually died and you really rose from the dead. And you honestly, as you opened the way to the Holy of Holies, you want us to come in with you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Hey, if anybody doesn't know where you stand with God, it's very simple. And I know there'll be some people who would love to talk with you over in the prayer room, just right through those doors on the left-hand side. Um, or if you need prayer for anything else also, they'd be glad to do that. And just to help you to be encouraged and to realize that, man, we have the greatest deal. We have the most awesome opportunity, a relationship with God that really works, that really has the power to do something that thousands of years of tradition and ritual never could do. God bless you.